You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. He's striving with them and showing them how they ought to live. In this passage, there's none of that. In this passage, there only is judgment facing these people. This is a scathing denunciation of this group of people, and there's no indication here at all that they're bearing any fruit for God or that they're living righteously in any capacity at all or that they even appear at this point in time to have any hope at all before God. This is a severe passage of Scripture. Can you think of a group of people that have no hope with God? As Pastor Tom points out in his message today, the scripture definitely sets up a harsh picture for those that James is addressing. The danger being revealed to them is intense and imminent. We need to make sure that we're paying attention too, so that we don't fall into the same trap and suffer the same fate. What sin has entangled these people and how do we avoid it? Let's listen in and find out. Now here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 5 as he continues his message, The Impending Judgment of the Ungodly Rich and Powerful. Now turn to chapter 5, and we'll read this denunciation of the rich. Come now, you rich. Pretty clear who he's talking to there. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure and have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Now, I've said that this was a passage of Scripture that was written to the unbeliever. Why is that? Because the tone of this passage is different from any of the other paragraphs in James. You'll notice in the other paragraphs in James, you'll see certain clues. He'll say something that he's very sharply rebuking them on, something like, my brother, these, my brothers, this should not be this way. Do not do this, my brothers. And so brethren is scattered throughout there. Or when he's dealing with the rich, he mentions that they have faith. Or he rebukes them and calls them to repentance. He's striving with them and showing them how they ought to live. In this passage, there's none of that. In this passage, there only is judgment facing these people. This is a scathing denunciation of this group of people, and there's no indication here at all that they're bearing any fruit for God or that they're living righteously in any capacity at all or that they even appear at this point in time to have any hope at all before God. This is a severe passage of Scripture. I think maybe the most severe in the letter. And I do believe, and many... Many of the commentators believe that it is written to unbelievers. The uh, rich businessman, for example, in the previous passage in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 4, those rich businessmen are still called how they are to live. They're told instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll live and also do this or do that. And they're corrected and they're urged on to proper Christian living, but not here. Not really in chapter 5 in verses 1 through 6. It's a different kind of rich. These are not rich 
believing businessmen who deserve the rebuke of the previous passage. These are ungodly, unrighteous, rich, who are really landowners and use their power and influence as landowners to oppress the poor workers who were serving them. And we'll see this in the passage. Really, the passage is broken into two parts. There's the warning that is given in verse 1, the warning to the rich, and then there's a case that's made against the rich. You'll see kind of four reasons why uh, the, the rich, the ungodly, the unrighteous rich are, are in trouble with God. And that comes in verses 2 through 6. So you get the warning in verse 1, and then you get kind of the case against these ungodly rich in verses 2 through 6. Just look at the warning first with me. It's rather strong. Come now, you rich. What does he tell them to do? Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. You know, James probably had in mind the fact that the, the rich had caused many miseries to come upon the poor, and he's speaking here of divine justice, which is always appropriate. On the head of the evildoer will come his own evil, is the idea. God's justice is always that way. He meets out what is right upon the wicked. You did this, and so you get this. Remember in the law of God, justice, an eye for what? An eye. A tooth for what? tooth. It's equal. This is how God's justice is. You created miseries for the poor, weep and howl for the miseries that are going to come on you. It's really very strong. Miseries is in the plural, by the way. You see, it's not just one. Back in chapter one, the godly were said, you have many trials, plural, that you're going to run into. It could be poverty, could be persecution, could be sicknesses, all kinds of things. But now the ungodly rich, they have miseries coming upon them in the future. In fact, it says, which are coming upon you. It's quite, it's quite impending upon them. It's already in the process. It's like a cloud that's coming over them right now is the picture. And I believe what James is doing here in this passage is he's using the uh, prophetic past tense where he's looking at the future of their judgment that's going to actually happen in the future, but he speaks of it as present and as past because it is coming and it is done in the mind of God. And so he warns them, come now, you rich. What are they supposed to do? Well, it's not repentance here. It's weeping and howling. If you read, if you look up those words in the Old Testament, you'll see there's a lot of weeping and howling that goes on with the, the ungodly, the unrighteous who are facing the judgment of God. Isaiah talks about that, and Ezekiel talks about that, and Jeremiah and Joel weep and howl. Weeping, of course, is tears that are coming. They're going to be so sad. Howling, that's actually a word that sounds like what it is in Greek, and it means they're going to be just crying out. They're in such distress. It's mindful of the, uh, the account, I don't call it a parable, the account of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 where the rich man who would not even care for the poor man at his gates, remember that? The, the poor man is named Lazarus. This is not the Lazarus who was raised from the dead, but another Lazarus who's poor. Dogs were licking his sores. He died. The rich man died. They go off to the next life. What happens? Very instructive account by the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody wants to know what happens when you die. Well, this tells you. Here's Scripture telling you. The, the poor man who is assumed to be there, a believer who trusted uh, in the God of Abraham, he goes into Abraham's bosom and he's comforted. Rich man, rich though, man, is in the portion of Hades in the afterlife where he's in torture, and he says, I'm, I'm hot, and I'm thirsty, and there's this heat, and he cries out across some kind of a chasm, Father Abraham, please send Lazarus to cool my tongue. And Abraham, Abraham says, no, no, my child. In your life, you received what? Good things. And in his life, 
He didn't receive anything good hardly at all. And so now you are receiving your just punishment, basically, is what he's saying. And the scary thing about that is he extends that account, and the rich man, still having some measure of concern for other people, says, please let me go back and warn. Let there be a warning sent back to my brethren who are still living in the world that they would not live as I live. And even that is denied, you know. Ebenezer Scrooge got visited, you know, the spirit of that guy that was his partner, you know, in, in messing the poor up. But um, according to the, the gospel of Luke, that's not even, not even going to be allowed. No, no one's going to come back from the dead to warn the rich. You shouldn't have lived that way. You should have been caring for the poor. Now that you didn't do it, look what you're going to get. In other words, they, the rich can live every day of their life right up to the day they die and not even be aware that they're about to slip into eternity and suffer and be in misery after misery after misery. They may feel great right before their dying breath, but that's not how they're going to feel in eternity. Isn't that scary for them? So weep and howl for these miseries that are coming upon you. Now he builds the case against the rich, part two, starting in verse two through six. The first case against them is that they have been hoarders. You know this show, Hoarders, you know? You look at it, you shake your head. How could anybody hoard all that stuff? Well, there are a lot of hoarders. Some people hoard junk. Other people hoard good stuff. But it's still hoarding. And this is what they're doing here. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you. Notice uh, the, the language of being in the courts. The witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. And then he adds this ominous statement. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Wow, what's he saying? Well, in the ancient world, they measured their wealth by grain that they were able to store away. Remember the other parable, the rich man that said, you know, I have so much grain. What am I going to do with all my grain? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my smaller barns and I'm going to build what? Bigger barns. And I'm going to have all this grain that's going to last for years. And I'm going to say to myself, soul, you're satisfied. Lean back. Take your ease. Jesus interrupts in that parable and says, you fool tonight, your soul will be required of you. You didn't know that. You didn't know tonight you were going to die. You didn't know that. But that's exactly what's going to happen. Now who's going to own all the granary that you had? So they measured their wealth in, in grains, but also, interestingly, in costly garments. And yes, also in gold and in silver like we do today. We have other ways of measuring our wealth. So he's talking to the ancients here, and he says, you know, here's your, your garments, your, your costly garments, those garments that you wear and walk in and people are impressed with, and now they have become mothy. Some people think they interpret this like they had so many clothes they couldn't wear them all, and they were sitting around, and so they kind of ruined. I don't really think that's the context. I think, again, he's looking forward to the, uh, to the judgment of God, and he's looking at it from there. What are you going to do with all your garments now? They're of no value to you whatsoever. Because when you go to gold and silver, you realize gold doesn't really rust. So it says it's, it's rusted. He's looking at it from that prophetic perspective in the future and looking back and saying, what are you going to do with all that gold and that silver that you had? You know, sometimes in church, we warn people that your gold and your silver cannot help you. Stocks and bonds, you want to throw that in there too. Your gold and silver cannot help you when you stand before God. Is that true? But what we sometimes don't say, what James is saying here in his verses, not only will all of your gold and silver not help you, it'll be a witness against you. It'll be a witness against you. It's rust, the fact that you kind of hoarded it for yourself and it was used for yourself and is useless, and now there it was in your position. You can almost see on Judgment Day 
the throne of God, you can almost see each person coming up to give their account and they're thinking they're wonderful people and all this stuff because everybody thinks they're wonderful people. They stand before God and they don't look so wonderful next to the Lord Jesus Christ and God, right? And they ask, what's all this silver? What's all this gold? What's all this property you had? What are all these homes that you had? What, what is this with all this stuff that you had? And they're like, blah, 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 blah. You know, I, 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 yeah, I, I had it. And, and all that stuff that they had is now going to be like the evidence presented in court. But you didn't give it to the poor. You didn't share with those in need. You didn't help out the missionary. You just added to your own estate over and over. And that's going to be the testimony against them. You were a hoarder. So I'm looking up hoarding this past week, you know. What is it with these hoarders? I'm trying to figure it out. You know, the Mayo Clinic calls it a, you know, a mental illness, a disorder. I disagree. I think it's an approach towards life which doesn't understand why we're given possessions. You know, the hoarder basically finds something. They like what it looks like. If it's useful, maybe it's a tool. Maybe they're hoarding tools. Maybe they're hoarding cats. I don't know. People hoard all kinds of things, right? And they hoard stuff, and it starts to pile up around the house, right? If you've got a home and stuff is piling up, listen, you know? And then they, they, they have too much stuff, so they want to be organized, and they put it into a storage. Having a storage unit is okay, but what are you storing? How are you going to use it? And it starts to get cluttered and it starts to pile up around the house and they're hoarding things. All of that hoarding, all of that collecting is for what? Well, maybe one day I might be able to use it. That's the problem. Find someone who needs it now and give it to them. You see the difference? That's why he says, or writes here, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. What does that mean? That means that's a big boo-boo. That's a big problem. You didn't realize that it's in your last days. Now, people hear last days, they start thinking about, oh, yeah, my last days. That's retirement. That's retirement. That's why I stored up my wealth. Stored up my wealth for retirement. So you live your whole life to store it all up, then you go to retirement and just live at ease. Kind of the same wrong mentality, isn't it? No, no. Last days doesn't mean my last days on earth, as in, i.e., old age. Last days means the last days in which the Lord Jesus Christ, with that sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth as the vision in Revelation says that Lord Jesus Christ, he's coming back and he's coming back with judgment. And it's in these last days that you piled up that treasure. That was not smart. Because all you did is by collecting all of that stuff, you let that testify against you and against any righteousness that you might have. It shows that you're an unbeliever. It shows that you were, your heart was invested in the things of the world. Sermon on the Mount. And by the way, this sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Again, we see those parallels. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount, then he says, store up your treasures where? In heaven, not on earth, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is what? There your heart will be also. See, how do we know where a person's heart is? Well, we got a little bit of an indication. There was this thing that was passed down the aisle. Do you remember what it was? It was kind of circular, kind of gold-looking. Had a little red velvet at the bottom. And, and as it gets passed, it goes back and forth between the aisles. And no, it, it doesn't really yell at you. It doesn't say, give to the Lord. But it just comes. Some people, they have their regular giving. 
Once a month, they give 10%, they give 8%, they give whatever they believe that they, they, they want to give to the Lord out of, the, out of their heart, and they're saying thank you to God, continue the work of the church and do that. But people that just, you know, once they just put a little bit in, just to show they're putting a little bit in, but there's no, there's no real practice of giving, there's no real commitment to giving. It's 1%, it's 2%, it's nothing. That reveals the heart, Right? And it's a testimony against those that don't give because their heart is wrapped up where their treasure is. The mouth says one thing, but in the heart it's like, no, 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 no. I want the nicer home. I want the nicer vacation. I want, I really want the nicer car. And it might be one thing for you and one thing for you and one thing for me, but there it is, and it has a grip on the life. This passage is talking about unbelievers, but saying, you look at the way the rich live and the way they make decisions and how they mistreat the righteous. Why is it that way? Because of their love of money. And we can still glean some understanding from that and application for our own lives. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. That was not smart at all. It's all going to work as a witness against you. Even consume your own flesh like those riches have become a poison or a fire inside of them, and it's going to lead to their eternal destruction. Terrible, terrible thing. Now, back out of this a little bit. Make sure you don't misunderstand me. Is it wrong to buy gold as an investment? No. Is it wrong to buy silver as an investment? No. Is it wrong to own a home and take care of it, pair the air conditioning when it breaks? Plumbing, put some nice pictures up on the wall, new coat of paint. No, it's not wrong. But we can get carried away with that, can we not? We can get like, well, I need to have and I need to have and I need to have and the, and the extra money just keeps going for that and just one year after another year. And what happens? What happens when the appeals for the poor or for the work of the gospel come? There's just not anything there. There's just not much there. Sorry, but I could, but, you know, I had to fix this, and I had to fix that, and I had to buy that. But you didn't have to, actually. You chose to. And so Pastor Tony comes up here, and he says, you know, we need money for med mission, and the money's in your pocket, and you all laugh at that because he's right. The money that they need for the med mission, that's already in your pocket. But the problem is it might not be in your pocket. You might have already spent it, and that's a problem, and it's something we need to evaluate in our own lives. Now, that's just by way of application for us. Don't be a hoarder. Don't be someone who has more and more in their home. You know, I was, I was thinking that we really do a pretty good job here at Hope. I, I was just thinking about this. With Hope Book, we have the, uh, the sharing of belongings. You know, does anyone have need of this? And five people want it right away, right? Does anyone have need of this? And they're shared back and forth. And it's a wonderful thing. You were letting go of belongings, belongings that we don't need. That's a nice thing. But you know what would be even better? Can I just say this? You know what would be even better? Is if someone in our congregation would take up the leadership or at least the organization of how we can take our extra belongings and pass them on to the poor. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Maybe, someone, maybe the Lord will put that on someone's heart and say, you know what, I think I could do that. I think maybe we could team up with some other churches or some other organization and we could do some collecting. We do a little bit of that at Christmas and all, but how many pairs of shoes do you have right now? Go home and count them. Next week, we're going to come in and we're going to raise a card each of our heads. This is how many pairs of shoes I have. Some of you are going to be like, I got 37. I'm not going to church next week, man. I got a cold. All right, if it's not shoes and then you're like, well, I only have six pairs of shoes. That's not, well, some people don't have any pairs of shoes in the world. What are we doing? You know what I mean? How many suits and ties do I have? How many, how many blue jeans? You know what I mean? 
So let's just give this some thought. Let's give this some prayer. Let's think about how can we mobilize as a congregation to make sure that we who are more affluent are getting things out in, in some way that really works and, and can help the poor. Let's kind of focus on that. All right, so they're hoarders. Let's move on. We're running out of time. The second witness against them is they withheld pay. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. Case number two or, or witness number two. Withholding pay from workers. Now we're really sounding like the socialist here <laughs> a little bit, right? It's like this sounds like an anti-capitalist rant or something like that. It's not. The Bible's not against capitalism. It's actually against socialism, but it's against the abuse of capitalism, and it should be. The greed that's gone amok. So what's happened here? The, the landowners in those days, they buy up more and more properties. They put the little guy out of business. He has to sell the farm. He can't keep up with it. And then he has no job, so he comes to work for the guy with the bigger farm. The guy says, yeah, I give you a job. You can work with the other workers, and they start working. And they work, and they work all day in the noonday sun, and it's hot, and it's back-breaking work. Their feet hurt. Their hands have calluses on it, right? Then they come at the end of the day. You remember another parable of the Lord Jesus, and, and the point of the parable wasn't exactly the pay at the end of the day, but it showed that the workers were paid at the end of the day, and they expected to be paid at the end of the day. And so they come, and they want to be paid, but here the rich guy says, you know, I don't have the pay today. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll get it to you. There's actually law in Deuteronomy and Leviticus that forbade the Israelites from withholding the wages for a worker overnight. It had to be given to them on that day. Why? It's an agrarian society. They're poor. They go from hand to mouth, right? That's how it is. If you don't bring home some money, you don't have dinner. You come home, there's the wife and kids. You work 12 hours in the sun and you're, what do you have? It's like, well, they didn't pay us today. So I guess we're not eating tonight. You have to look in the eyes of your wife and your kids. And this, is, this was a, a terrible evil. Do you see that? It was very unjust. And that's what these rich guys could do because I'll pay you the next day. And if you were the kind of worker that complained about that, you'd just be blacklisted for the next day, right? No job for you tomorrow. That guy's a troublemaker. And then if you expected your compadres to help out, they'd say, don't talk to me. I don't want you anywhere near me. You, know, you shouldn't open up your mouth. You know, just be quiet and just, you know, maybe we'll have money tomorrow. Because they had, they had no recourse. They had no way to fight the rich. Oh, well, why don't they take them to court? They take them to court, fine, go to court. And then the rich get the better lawyers. The rich pay off the judges. That's it. They're squeezed out. They're gone. James knows that. James has righteous indignation, and he's fighting for the poor believers in that sense. But really what he's doing is saying, you poor believers, since, since the ungodly rich are probably not even reading this, He's really writing this in the benefit for those that are the poor, saying, don't envy them and don't let your wrath be against them. God will take care of them. Their, their miseries are coming upon them. By the way, I love this. He says, the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Pay of the laborers cries out against you. Remember when the Lord Jesus came into Jerusalem and, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees said, Rabbi, rebuke your uh, disciples from singing this Hosanna stuff. And Jesus' response, do you remember that? If I'm quiet and they're quiet, they don't sing, the rocks will cry out. Here the coins are crying out. The coins are saying, we belong to the worker. And that cry, so to say, is going all the way up to the Lord of hosts. Now that title, Lord of hosts, is a high and powerful 
title for God, even in the Old Testament. It means the Lord of the armies. There's the Lord of the armies. And that cry of injustice is now, literally it says, entered into the ear of the Lord of hosts. And what does he have? He has an army. And what would they do? If a king was indignant against the sin of a city, he would ride in with his army and he would slaughter those who had done that which was wrong. That's the picture here. You think you're safe? God is about to ride in with his armies and he's about to defend the poor. And you're going to suffer. God not only defends the poor, but he also cares for their souls, instructing them through his word from James to not be envious of the rich. It's for our benefit too. God always deals with injustice. And though we might look at circumstances here on earth and wonder why the wicked seem to prosper while the righteous remain lowly, God makes things right in the end. With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Leak, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit hopebible.org. Now, here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. Have you ever played the game where you talk about everything you'd do if you suddenly had a million dollars? What would you do with it? Buy a house or a car, take a trip, give to charities or the church? While it might be fun to dream about it, it's probably God's grace that we don't get it. Tune in next time to hear Pastor Tom discuss the disadvantages of being financially advantaged. To listen again to today's message in the book of James, visit HopeBibleChurch.org and look under the Sermons tab. Pastor Tom will return soon with another in-depth study of God's Word. So join us again right here on Discover Hope.